Sometimes you get lucky and your game is an instant hit without investing in growth. For everyone else, there's IronSource. IronSource is a game tech company which builds technologies that helps you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super efficient way. So whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, IronSource is the perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor Fund are giant fans of IronSource because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So we suggest that you head on to ironsource.com, that's ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. Folks, most mobile advertisers are increasingly aware of the dangers of app install fraud. In fact, global financial exposure to app install fraud in the first half of 2020 was $1.6 billion. And even though the mobile ad industry has grown exponentially to defend itself properly against ad fraud, the potential amount of damage is still extremely high and fraudsters will always want a piece of that pie. Now, fraud methods are constantly evolving and adapting to solutions in the market. Still, staying protected and applying sophisticated anti-fraud solutions are very much a necessity for all marketers. As you all know, our good partner AppSlyer offers super robust fraud protection, making sure you're not paying for that bogus traffic. AppSlyer is also perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive that marketing success. And listen, it's not only us at here at Deconstructor of Fun raving about apps, Liar, Playrix, Tencent, Playtica, Square Enix, Huge Games, all of these companies and many more are using Apps Liar to boost their business. So go to appsflyer.com and get yourself attribution and fraud protection you can trust. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to Twig 97. We've got myself, Joe Kim, Adam Telfer, Eric Kress, and we have a guest with us, Dan Bailey. And maybe we could just start with a quick intro from you, Dan. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so I got into the video game industry about uh, 15 years ago. I started in QA, uh, moved into programming, and then got into production. Uh, so I've been a producer for the better part of 10 years, worked at a bunch of companies, uh, started up indie studios, ran indie studios, all the way up to bigger companies like Telltale, Zynga, things like that, worked at Blizzard for a minute. Um, and the past couple of years, I've been getting into uh, acting and voice acting. So I've stepped away from production recently, but still involved in one way or another. Very cool. So a lot of great on the ground operational experience, unlike some of our fancy execs here and there. So that's, <laughs> that's great. So today we're gonna to be covering four articles. First, Amazon is good at so many things, why is it bad at games by protocol? Take Two Interactive acquires mobile studio PlayDots for 192 million by Gama Sutra. Third, Tencent takes minority stake in French casual games maker Voodoo by TechCrunch. And finally, video game creators are burned out and desperate for change by Time Magazine. All right, guys, before we jump into updates, anything going on in your personal lives? What's, what's going on? Nothing. I got nothing, dude. I my kids are starting school today. That's it, and uh, and they're very depressed that they have to be at home. So, and I'm depressed too. I want them to get out of here. That's what I want. <laughs> I've got one more month until I move into my house, and um, I've ordered gigabit internet. 
for my new house. I don't know if you guys have anything new that, no. but I think the maximum download speed I've ever gotten, um, whether it's been here, LA or Berlin has been three megabytes per second. Like that's what? the maximum that I've ever experienced. Oh, that's, that's crazy, dude. I get, I get like 600 megabits. So what's that? 800 megabits. So that's like, yeah. Like when you're downloading on steam, like what's your 10, 10, 10 megabytes per second. Yeah. 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 So I've, I've never gone really more than three. So I feel like this is just going to be a whole new life for me. Dude, it doesn't mean shit, dude. You know, because you're just downloading it faster, right? I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. It's the, like, I don't know. Like whenever I got to download any digital game, it takes me all night. Dude, uh, I understand. You want to build up your porn collection, you know? It's, it's really important. <laughs> right? Really important. Exactly. So, exactly. This yeah. is what all right. I, I, see the, I see how that's life-changing. I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> All right, then rolling into updates. So first update for me. Well, guys, we have the greatest free-to-play live ops digital conference in the history of humankind happening next week. Literally some of the best speakers in the world on this from Riot, Zynga, Merca, Tilting Point, Miniclip, product leads on, you know, games you may have heard of like Words with Friends, 8-Ball Pool, Valorant. Anyway, go to liveops.splashthat.com. Also leave a link in the show notes. But again, it's a... Really great conference going on next week on September 3rd. So sign up ASAFP. Second update, Epex Games held a fr hashtag free Fortnite tournament yesterday and advertised it as the last opportunity to win a victory royale playing with friends across all platforms. As I'm sure all of you are already aware, iOS players will be left behind after the launch of Chapter 2, Season 4. And additionally, Epic gave away a massive number of prizes, including very cool t-shirts, caps, and a bunch of, you guessed it, non-Apple hardware you can play Fortnite on. But I, one, one quick thing that evidently the next season is going to be uh, Marvel themed is that that's the kind of the going expectation, which all this is timed like absolutely perfectly with this FU to Apple, right? So it's like you know that people are going to be outraged by the fact they can't access the, uh, you know, the skins on the Marvel skins. It's going to be, this is going to be epic. I can't wait to see how this all turns out. All right. And last update from me is that China's first AAA games looks incredibly promising. The trailer for Black Myth Wukong got over 10 million views on Billy Billy and 2 million on YouTube. I did my part as well, adding like five or six views as it was super impressive for developer Game Science. And Game Science, by the way, was founded in 2015 by an ex-Tencent team. Anyway, guys, don't sleep on this game. It really feels like it's going to do really well. And the Steam audience in China is actually really huge. So I'd say there's like a 90% chance, in my opinion, this game does really well based on the current demo video, the theme, and the market. Any other updates, guys? Yeah, I just got some light ones. So you've got Call of Duty Cold War. Um, the reveal is actually gonna be happening in a couple of days now on August 26th. Um, EA has now renamed their subscription to EA Play. Um, I think that's kind of minor news, but um, yeah, that, that looks like they're continuing to lean into that. Uh, yeah, GeForce. No, no, but coming to Steam is a big deal, right? Yeah, like being, yeah. Being able to do it on Steam, you have that in your notes, but like, like, it just gives them another outlet. So it should come to Epic as well, right? There's no yeah, and also I think they're trying to time that at the same time with their Apex Legends coming to Steam too. That mm. should be coming up too. Oh, right, right. 
uh, GeForce Now um, now works through web browsers, but only on Chromebooks. So GeForce Now has been struggling to actually grab that audience and I think trying to get more devices active within it. Um, there was also a report by Addictive, I don't know how to say the name, Addictive, I don't know, um, reporting on the IDFA opt-in rate. So in terms of experts, everybody is assuming that we're going to get to about 10, 10 to 20 percent opt-in rate from players. And I think that's really what's driving a lot of the speculation around um, the, the diminishing value of targeting and performance marketing. Um, but Addictive is actually uh, reporting that they've done some user testing um, and they actually saw roughly a 73% opt-in rate. Um, and that's from basically popping up the standard Apple pop-up, which says the, um, like, would you like this game to track everything and give you personalization, yada, yada. Um, but actually the opt-in rate was 73%, which is insane. And I think that fights a lot of our assumptions about what's going to be happening with IDFA. Yeah. And I actually heard this from, uh, I'm not going to say who, but like another, a company, a big, bigger publisher too, is that they've done similar things or perhaps they're just referencing this, this guy, these guys' thing. Do you think that's actually possible that you would get 73% opt-in to be no. tracked across all apps? No. So I think every, everyone <laughs> has to be smart here. We all have to be assuming, you know, that this next transition, that it's going to be a 10 to 20% opt-in rate and starting to plan for it now, right? Because I think if you're, if you're assuming that we'll be able to just continue on with a 73% opt-in rate, I think you're, um, okay. Uh, I, I don't think you'd be so, prepared. But, and also it, it, I, it just seems wishful thinking. Well, yeah. first of all, you're, what you're saying is it's wishful thinking that this would be true, but, but it's, if we, if what I think is true is that Apple is just going nuclear on this, these everybody, right? Like they're going to just basically pull it all together. There's going to be no opt in. It's just going to be the way it is. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, yep. so it doesn't even matter whether this first pass is, you know, what the opt in rate is. I think they're, they're just going to continue to make it more and more challenging to track users. Right. Fundamentally. So anyway, Continue. Yeah, the details on how they conducted this study were a little sketchy. So, I mean, not to say that it's not, it could be higher than 10 to 20%, but yeah, the, the study itself was not very clear in terms of the details and the specific execution. Okay. And to your it's point, easy, if it's, Apple it's, really it's, wanted it's, to go down, they could, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. So were the, was it as sketchy because they just didn't give you the details of how they ran the test or what was Exactly, it? right. Like, and then they said they did some type of, you know, targeted advertising, but weren't clear on exactly what they, you know, what kinds of apps, uh, all, all that kind of thing. So it's yeah. not clear. Context matters here, right? Like I think if you just, you know, bringing in a whole bunch of people and saying, you know, do this test, run this, run this app and do what you normally would do, even in just a testing context, players are not going to do the same way that they would if they're opening up a new game for the new time, for the first time, sorry. Um, okay, so let's move forward. Uh, there's also been a rumor now. Uh, so Halo was delayed until 2021, um, which was a big hit for Xbox X coming this holiday season. Um, but there's been a rumor now that uh, Halo developers are discussing removing current gen, as in Xbox, um, like current gen right now, to actually get the game done, which starts to go really against what I think Microsoft's principles are for that next What? Gen. Yeah. This was announced yesterday. That's absurd. Yep. Oh, I didn't even see that. What am I doing? Yeah. Why are you working on the weekends, man? <laughs> Why, how, are um, you, how are you preparing for Twig by not working on the weekends? That's my question. 
Uh, good point. Good point. <laughs> Damn, that, that's, yeah, that's against their whole strategy, dude. Their whole strategy is cross, cross generation. Yeah. You know, I, that, yeah, okay. Well, that's interesting. Interesting. Uh, quick update. Also, uh, Avengers. So they've had betas for the last couple weekends. Last weekend was the open beta. Um, I've been playing this quite a bit. This is their games as a service take on Avengers. Um, and I think that overall the response has been pretty mixed. There's been a, a healthy amount of positive sentiments around their combat system and around like how it definitely showed better than last time. But um, I think the more and more time people spend with it, the less and less people like it. They're trying to build a service and it's just not there. Um, also, there's been some, uh, I'd like to correct a little bit of what we've been discussing around the iOS purchase policy. Or this relates to free Fortnite. This relates to the whole Fortnite article. Um, Eric Suford actually did a really good um, tweet chain. I don't know what you call it. A bunch of tweets, uh, yeah. which he talked about the iOS purchase policy. Um, because the, the example we always constantly bring up is things like why would Fortnite, why must Fortnite and why all game developers must pay 30%, but when Netflix and Uber don't have to do this. So per iOS policy, all in-app digital goods and access to product features functionality must be sold as in-app purchases and use iTunes checkout. Um, so Apple has always stated that in-app purchases can be used or must be used for digital goods. So goods that are actually fulfilled within the app. So that's like coins in a game. Um, so for goods that are purchased in the app, but fulfilled in the real world, example, Uber, um, Apple allows the developer to charge the user directly. So in the case of Uber, that's why they are given the pass. So the only difference here is that, you know, a few years ago, they actually dropped the percentage that was given for things like subscriptions. So um, things like Spotify and Netflix started actually encouraging users to subscribe via the web and bypass the whole in-app purchase system. And I think in a few cases, they even actively canceled people's subscriptions and told them to re-sign up through the web. Um, but uh, Apple has allowed for uh, a decrease from that 30% to the 50% specific for those subscriptions. The only weird case that Apple has kind of um, crossed that line is actually Amazon Video. Um, Apple, uh, since April this year, Apple allowed Amazon to sell video content through its Prime iOS app via the Amazon checkout process. So I think that is the one example that I think Epic and Fortnite can actually point to where Apple has definitely gone um, against its own policies. But it's not true, like don't bring up examples of like Starbucks or Uber um, saying that they get special exemptions because they don't, um, because the policy is strictly for in things that can be fulfilled within the app itself. All right, I have one quick correction. Um, I believe I called the CEO of EA a moron. Uh, <laughs> I didn't, that was not what I meant to say. What I meant to say, he has been a moron on mobile, right? Which is, I still think is true. I uh, do not think he's been a moron. On the contrary, I think he has managed EA extremely well in his tenure. He has let the CFO do what he needs to do to reduce cost, cut ridiculous TV marketing budgets, and has led the company to basically an all-time high and kind of the opposite of moronic. So I apologize about that. Um, now, of course, he still has not done jack shit on mobile, but that's a whole other thing. Okay. Uh, the other one I wanted to do quickly is uh, Apple. 
I, I wanted to get your take on this, Adam, but um, Apple is threatening to remove support for Unreal Engine on the App Store, which could not only impact Epic's games, but also impact all the developers that have created games using Unreal Engine. And it basically said that the developer program could be terminated as soon as August 28th, man, they are going, new. they are just getting ruthless, right? And, and so there was just basically, there was an article or, or a, a written part about this where, you know, it basically threatens Fortnite, but also all the other games that use Unreal Engine. And um, it just seems that Apple's just not playing right now. And Epic is, uh, is, is going to have some real challenges going forward. Um, so anyway, we are uh, basically having two experts on this week uh, to talk about what's the likely outcome for these, these cases of, against, you know, that Epic is bringing. Um, we're going to have David Hoppy come back, um, as well as an antitrust expert, Ryan Tish from Crowell, which will be, I think, very interesting um, interview. So is this, is this accurate, though? Is, is, is Apple... This Apple threat going to impact all the other people that have Unreal games going forward? Do you know, Adam? I, I think it's going to be true. I mean, I'm not Adam, but Microsoft actually just released a statement as well in support of, of Epic. And they mentioned that it's uh, the other thing that Microsoft said is that it's going to be hard for them to continue using Unreal if there's even, even with this uncertainty, right? Even if it's just like not clear whether that, whether they could use Unreal in the future. So right. definitely not a cool move by Apple. But man, this is getting good, right? I'm glad I'm on the sidelines on this one, but this is uh, going to be interesting to see how this all shapes up. Okay, people, we're going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsor, Beta Hat, and then we will be right back. So stay tuned. I want to talk about consumer insights. Honestly, I've always had issue with consumer insights. I questioned the value and felt that CI was always somewhat disconnected from the real world. The big issue with CI firms is they don't hire people that know anything about video games and therefore don't have a fundamental understanding of what matters in this business. That's why I like Beta Hat. Beta Hat knows the business of video games and understands how to connect consumer insights to the real world. And Beta Hat helps you understand your customers, understand not only what they do, but why. They specialize in customer segmentations, brand tracking, messaging and positioning, pricing and SKU planning, and playtesting through qualitative and quantitative research. There are about 10 people in this industry that I rely upon to understand trends. And one of them is Stan Kwan, the CEO of Beta Hat. Beta Hat is the best CI team in the industry. Go to betahatmr.com for more information. That's betahatmr.com. Welcome back from the commercial break, and let's start the news. All right. Well, rolling into the news. So the first news article we're going to start with is about Amazon something we've talked about a fair amount on this podcast as well, but the article is titled Amazon is good at so many things. Why is it bad at games by the media publication called protocol? And basically according to protocol, Amazon actually announced in April that this year, meaning 2020, this would be like the big coming out party for the video game division after spending hundreds of millions of dollars and almost a decade building an internal game dev unit. The company was banking on really Crucible, kind of know how that went, and an MMO fantasy game called New World. So Crucible, as we've already reported on in this podcast before, launched in May, very negatively reviewed, and then pulled off the market and returned to open beta in June. In New World, Amazon said would ship in May, then it was delayed to August, 
And in July, Amazon again delayed to next year. So according to protocol, Amazon's head of games, Jeff Frazzini, who joined Amazon in 2004, he's been like the main person behind the Amazon's game efforts and is now under lots of internal pressure. Protocol also suggests that one of the big problems is Frazzini himself. So he told Protocol last March that, quote, we're bringing a lot of Amazon practices to making games. And they suggest that Amazon just fundamentally doesn't understand the difference between a service like Amazon and a creative endeavor. Apparently, Amazon treated the game design like a consumer internet service or a packaged good, goods product as well. They went out and solicited input from hundreds of streamers and esports figures and then tried to turn audience sentiment into the design for some kind of hit new game. They also did it in a very incremental way, asking very specific questions like, which weapon do you prefer or what classes and enemies do you enjoy? So Protocol points out that at other successful game studios like at Rockstar or Blizzard, creators were shielded from sort of the dumb execs and business people, but that apparently is not happening at Amazon. And another point Protocol points out is the head of Amazon Studios, Jennifer Salk, has a different approach. She allows the film and TV people to do their thing. Further, Salk and her boss come from the film and TV world with deep experience. Salk was president of NBC Entertainment. Her boss, Mike Hopkins, was CEO of Hulu and chairman of Sony Pictures. On the other hand, Frizzini actually has no significant game industry experience, according to protocol. Anyway, I'll stop the summary here. There's a bit more to the article, but in my personal take on this is I thought Protocol did a pretty good job, pretty well-researched piece, largely echoes and confirms a lot of things that we were thinking here on the podcast. And I don't know, but for me personally, you got to think that this is probably it, that Amazon will probably pull the cord if Crucible doesn't make a miraculous turnaround or if New World doesn't become a massive hit. Any thoughts, guys? Yeah, I'm not going to go rehash this whole thing. I just think this is kind of like the detail around the, you know, kind of a high level summary about why Amazon's failing, like just conflicting priorities and yeah. people in charge that shouldn't be in charge and, 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 and development by, by consensus, right. Of non-gaming people, right. People need to have the creative freedom in order to build what they need to, what, what they want to build, you know, within a certain framework at least, you know, but anyway, uh, it's hard for tech companies, as we've said many times and we've talked about, incessantly um, and it's becoming hard at even blizzard right now with all that what's going on there for the same kind of reason um all right next article take two interactive acquires mobile studio play dots for 192 million um so take two acquired play dots for around 200 million 90 million in cash and 102 million worth of shares um play dots basically has one game that i could see uh, that was contributing to revenue. Uh, perhaps they have more that contributing to downloads. Uh, and the studio is led by a former King guy named Nir Efrat. Um, so for me, this acquisition seems to have absolutely no strategic value whatsoever. <laughs> There's no synergies, no product overlap, no tech, no ops. I don't really, really see what the value is here for take two besides perhaps maybe a little bit more revenue on in mobile. Um, so it looks like they have like 2 million in-app purchases for the game uh, every month. So maybe 24 million run rate and probably you double that for the amount of advertising they do. So 50 million gross 
or net um, grosses up to 70. So it's like two and a half, 2.8 times revenue. I guess that's not too bad, but I just don't understand why they're doing these transactions. Um, you know, do they need the other team? I mean, are, are they just trying to grow their mobile line item? I, I, I don't get this at all. Um, and I, frankly, I mean, I don't even understand why all these companies are getting bought to begin with. I thought, you know, a lot of these companies are going to be in real trouble after IDFA happens if their focus is on advertising, I would think. But I don't know. What do you think, Joe? I mean, it could be kind of ha as we speculated before on the Rollick ac acquisition by Zynga. And I, I think that Mishka is actually working on some content that'll go more in depth in terms of iOS 14 and IDFA deprecation. So let's let him do that. But it's potentially this perspective on iOS 14 and getting access to a large database of users and somehow using IDFE in some way. And I haven't seen good coverage in terms of how people could actually potentially use that, the IDFE cross promo, that, that thesis, but maybe that's, that's the only other thing that I can think of, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, that doesn't feel like enough to me personally, right? Like, like a speculative bet that IDFE will be at least equivalent to the value right now. And that's still assuming that, you know, that the ad revenue is roughly 50% of these games. Yeah, I agree. It's a stretch. Yeah. yeah. Or some, something we just don't know, right? It could be something else. Who knows? Yeah. That was, that was going to be my guess reading into it is that there's, there's something going on behind the scenes that's not being made public that they wanted to get a hold of that they could see some kind of profit for down the line. Um, given the products that they have already, I, I don't see what that could possibly be, like what they might come out of left field with. Um, but that's the only thing that makes sense to me as far as why they would spend that kind of money on something that just isn't that profitable to begin with. Yeah, can I be my cynical self for a moment here? Here's what I think. I think this corp dev guy that was in the article, which I can't remember his name, I think his job is to go out and acquire shit, right? And so he's acquiring shit and the management team, particularly the CEO of, of Take-Two has no idea what these companies are, what they are. They're being pitched to bill goods and they're just consolidating these semi-crappy companies and, and that's it. And so he's doing his job and, you know, and the result's going to be a, a train wreck. That's what I think. That's what I think really. So uh, I always, I always felt like Playdots was actually a pretty good studio. Um, like that for their size, um, one of the few successful studios out in New York. Right. And I think that their visual style with dots and two dots and dots and co. Um, actually worked pretty well as the things transitioned to hyper casual. So I'm, I'm not going to knock to play dots too much. And clearly like, I, th I think they're going to be on the more positive end of the spectrum here. I, I just don't understand why take two. No, no, no. I, sorry. I, I, I don't mean to say that, that, that what they did, the, the studios, but I, I don't understand why this is a thing for take two, right? I no, understand I why another mobile game company would acquire a company like this. Cause they're, yeah, they make great games and you know, there, there are, there are issues there with the IDFA stuff, but I'm just saying like take two doesn't know jack shit about mobile and they're acquiring these companies and why they need like a casual. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't foot match three right? studio. Right. Yeah. That's um, all I'm saying. Sorry. And like, what are they doing with social point? Right. Like, yeah, I mean, social point on? didn't make sense either, you know? So yeah. anyway, moving on. Yeah, let's move on to the next big acquisition from this week. Um, so Tencent takes a minority stake in French casual games developer Voodoo. Um, so Tencent invests in minority stake um, in the big hyper-casual developer. Um, the amount of investment has not been closed, disclosed, but um, the rumor from July was that it would be roughly a 20 to 25% stake. 
for less than 500 million euros, so about $568 million, the deal may value Voodoo at about 1.5 billion euros, uh, $1.6 billion. I forget what their valuation was during the whole Goldman Sachs investment thing. I didn't write that down. Do you guys remember? 1.8. 1.8 was their valuation with Goldman Sachs? Okay. Uh, Tencent, um, like overall, has taken a lot of minority stakes in a lot of different companies. Uh, so it will be interesting to see how involved they get with Voodoo and what the deal terms were. Um, like how much of a strategic investment is this? Is this some sort of like right of first refusal type of offer? Are they trying to put their chips down on Voodoo? Um, but if you look at their portfolio, Tencent, right? Like they've got 40% of Epic um, and I, I'm pretty sure they're pretty involved there. Um, then you've got Blue Hole, PUBG at about 11 and a half percent. A number of uh, console developers like Platinum, Jaeger, Frontier, uh, where they've done these kind of minority um, uh, investments as well as platforms like Kakao and Discord. Um, and then they've kind of spread their bets out around, around some publishers like Ubisoft, Activision and Paradox. Um, so for Voodoo, we don't like, if we're gonna say about a 20% stake, this is gonna be somewhere in between the PUBG and Epic kind of percentage. Um, and for Voodoo, where they are now, they've, they've launched you know, well over hundreds of titles and supposedly are at about 300 um, uh, million MAU as of December, 2019. Um, and Voodoo still is the number one hyper-casual developer in comparison to Lion as in AppLovin. Um, I think they're roughly about double the size of, of Lion. Um, as of July, 2019 to July, 2020, uh, you can look at the number of downloads and I think that's probably the best way you can qualify their growth. So they grew from about 193 million downloads in that month to now to about 283 million downloads in that month. Um, so roughly about two X as large as Lion. So no one, the, the big question here is just, again, no one knows the impact of IDFA. So why would Tencent invest now until waiting until, you know, IDFA has actually figured itself out? Um, so my sense is there's probably four reasons for this minority investment. Um, and like oh, three or four possible reasons, and I'm going to try to answer which ones I think are likely. First one would be, say, Chinese regulation for voodoo. Um, I don't think this is likely because I think uh, Daniel Ahmad from Nico has, has uh, reported as well. Voodoo games um, do likely do not require many changes to actually comply with regulatory updates in China um, because games with and our purchases require licenses, but games that monetize with ads do not. Um, so likely Voodoo doesn't really have to do a hell of a lot to actually go to China. Um, and Voodoo has set up studios around the world and have talked about moving to, to more in-app purchase models. Uh, but still, that seems like a pretty big speculation. Is it about IDFA, like the vendor IDs we talked about before? Likely not. This is a minority stake. So I'm assuming this isn't really possible. This isn't going to be Tencent using, utilizing that active player base. So the two, two real reasons, I think, likely is Tencent's WeChat mini games platform. Um, if you compare, uh, WeChat mini um, has roughly 1.1 billion MAU which is just slightly smaller than Facebook Messenger, 1.3 billion. And WeChat mini programs are massive in China. And the amount of programs is roughly about 2.3 million versus the 2.1 million on the App Store. So there's plenty of developer support there. Um, so WeChat as a platform, of course, is massive in China for a lot more than chatting. So there's a lot of extensions built into the platform for purchasing, ordering. Um, people even pay their utilities on WeChat, um, go on public transport. 
Um, so WeChat actually has this pretty successful games platform um, and is really where Facebook got that idea for instant games. But where Facebook got tripped up with those messenger games, WeChat have actually been pretty dominant. Um, I don't know all the numbers, um, but it seems like WeChat mini programs have sustained in China and are running off of games that are uh, run HTML5. So Voodoo has been trying to expand here. So giving Voodoo the partnership with Tencent probably makes sense. And lastly, Tencent teaching Voodoo more about the in-app purchase driven games model. Uh, and this was directly quoted in some of these articles. This is a maybe from me, but it seems like Voodoo wants um, the, the expertise from Tencent to talk about creating more complex games with more depth. Um, and I guess that makes sense, but that doesn't really feel like a, a major uh, strategic investment. So Adam, there's a fifth reason here. And I, I think you don't need to actually think too deeply about you know, like a specific tactical reason for Tencent to invest. I think the way that Tencent actually operates is they have, they've got a big board, basically a spreadsheet of the top developers in every single game genre and every single platform. And they try to basically just invest in the top developers and top studios in each of those specific categories. So my guess would be that, you know, they didn't really have an opportunity to invest in Voodoo in the past. And now because of the stuff happening, they do. Simple well, it's also, it's also like one of the shareholders probably wanted to get out, right? Uh, maybe they see the writing on the wall. So maybe a big chunk of equity became available in that way, you know? So. Yeah. Awesome. So they just put up a bid for, for Voodoo yeah. on the, the off chance that hyper casual, you know, continues. Yeah. Well, they, they want to invest in every category, regardless yeah, of, of the category and not really like try to predict the future. I love that strategy, man. If I could be head <laughs> of that strategy, money, it's kind of easy <laughs> these corp dev guys, man, they're just going around making all kinds of crazy investments. They don't have to be. They make it. They don't have to make any sense. <laughs> money, 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 money. Yeah, Eric, you sound salty this week about corp dev guys. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of them, you know. I just, yeah. Anyway, Daniel B. Yeah, so uh, the article I picked, it's, it's a little old. It's about a year old. Um, it stood out to me because I, I happened to work at Telltale when a lot of this stuff was going on. Um, it, to be fair, the article does kind of jump around a bit, but it's it's mostly about, um, you know, just in the recent years, the the amount of crunch and stress and, you know, all these games are trying to be churned out and then changed at the last minute. Um, and it's And it's the actual developers who are suffering for it. Um, it's kind of disorganized. The article itself is a little bit disorganized, unfortunately, because I think that the core issue that it's trying to bring out, um, is extremely relevant. And it's an argument that's, that's been going on in the industry for a long, long time. Um, and it's bringing in a lot of, but in order to, to back itself up and not seem like it was focusing completely on the situation at Telltale, um, it started bringing in all these other people and, and bringing in examples like a guy who said he got PTSD at, for working at Mortal Kombat. Um, and there were some other games in there that uh, they kind of mentioned. Um, they interviewed some people at uh, Riot and Rockstar and um, how, how uh, one of the higher ups at Rockstar at one point was bragging right before Red Dead Redemption 2 uh, that his people were working 100 hour weeks to uh, finish the game. Um, it seemed like the individual was kind of um, trying to say that was like, oh, look how dedicated these people are. Uh, but when you talk to the developers, the reality is that um, they're forced to do that because of poor planning, 
and last minute decisions that are made by executives. And then they have no choice but to work these 100 hour weeks in order to get the game out or maybe their job is going to be at stake. Um, you know, I mean, th there is a relative truth to the fact that, you know, people are, you know, a lot of developers, they get into the industry because they're passionate about it. They're very creative people and they love, you know, a, a lot of people work on games because they're like, I want to work on the games that I like to play. You know, it's, they want to do what they love doing you know, for a living. Um, and they're willing to put in the extra work for something that they're so passionate about. But, um, you know, nobody wants to work a hundred hour weeks and it's, it's completely unnecessary. Um, there were a lot of things about Telltale specifically that didn't get unpacked in this article um, that I could go on and on forever about. But effectively, what the, the core argument of the article is just that, um, you know, like it says that these games are built on the backs of workers. And uh, I think the, the argument of, you know, knowing a lot of these people is that, uh, um, you know, effectively the, the industry years ago, it was, you know, games were developed by gamers. The people that ran the studios were the people that liked playing games and they wanted to make the games that they liked playing. Um, and the industry has just gotten so, so large that a lot of the people that are running the studios now are not developers. Uh, and in my experience, oftentimes they're not even gamers in the first place. Um, it's just, it's an industry that is extremely, extremely profitable and it's a place that they know that they can make money. Um, and they really couldn't, couldn't care less if it's a game or if it's software or if it's any other product, if they're going to generate the revenue that they're going to generate, then that's what they're going to go in there and, and do. Um, and effectively at the end of the day, people aren't people, gamers aren't gamers. They don't view gamers as, um, a community. Uh, they don't really see much of a relationship between the developers and the players. It's more that the workers are numbers and the players are little piggy banks. And how do we get these little numbers over here to match up and line up so that we get in the green this quarter and how do we maximize revenue? You know, everything is a number on a sheet of paper. Um, and the fact that these are people and a lot of these people are creatives and there's a lot of passion involved has completely gone by the wayside. And I think that argument is where this article was trying to go and it, it lost its footing and went another direction unfortunately. Well, I will agree that this is a really terrible article. I mean, but, you know, <laughs> time is not well known for their, uh, you know, amazing articles. The problem with it is it conflates too many issues. I think you're right. It needed to focus yep. on the main thing that you're talking about, right? There's a story right. about mismanagement at Telltale, which is well documented. There's an offhand comment from a CEO of Rockstar about 100-hour work weeks. Then there's this sexism scandal at Riot. And then yeah. some, some developer who's diagnosed with PTSD after working in Mortal Kombat because of violence and gore. I mean, what a wuss. Jeez, why would you take such a job at Mortal Kombat? Like, Mortal Kombat's been the same game for 20 years, you know? If you're sensitive to violence and gore, move on. It's gone you know? violent, Eric. <laughs> it's Whatever. Dude, it's, what a wuss. Anyway. You know, I, I agree 100%. I would also, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm going too far. We, we were kind of chatting about this before. I, first of all, I would, I would challenge that that was actually a diagnosis in the first place. Um, but, you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm not his doctor, but that's just a report. You know, this person was saying, I got diagnosed with PTSD. And I, I feel like they self-diagnosed because that's, that's completely ridiculous. But yeah, you don't, you don't go, 
oh yeah, I'm going to apply to work on Mortal Kombat and then get upset when I see, you know, people getting killed in the video game. It's, it's, it's absurd. And that, I think putting that example in hurt the credibility of the article for sure. Yeah. You know, and, and I, look, I, I think all these articles are likely true, except the PDSD thing. I think that's stupid, but, yeah. um, but the, uh, the, the ultimate point of the article is suggesting that unions will solve all these problems, right, for, for game development. I think that's kind of like the moral here. And I, you know, first and foremost, I, I think video games are kind of a boom and bust business. Like demand for developers go up and down or uh, uh, teams go up and down based upon where you are in game development. So companies need the flexibility to move and fire employees if necessary, you know, based upon where we are in the development cycle. Second, and I think you're going to disagree with me on this, is that a lot of these people that are complaining about all these hours uh, of grind are really well-paid employees, right? Engineers and even artists are paid, you know, $100,000, $150,000 a year. It's like, this is not like line workers making $12 an hour. Um, and I think these skill sets are really high, unique. And, and not only that, the, these skill sets are not only unique and, and in demand for gaming, they're in, unique and in, in, in demand for other technology companies, right? So if you don't like it, go move on, right? Go do something else, right? Um, and, and the other thing is that there's also a ton of people, both the supply and demand, there's, like, there's a ton of people that want to work in video games, right? That's, that is a passion of theirs and they want to do that. So there's a ton of supply of people. So that makes it really hard to create a union type situation um, in which you have less flexibility, right? Yeah. And I, and I do think that the, the industry in general has become almost boundless in terms of opportunities, right? The, the barriers to entry are relatively low compared to other industries. And if so, if you don't like the violence of Mortal Kombat, go somewhere else, you snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> and no, in my I, opinion, unions are never gonna happen in video games. So um, I, you know, I, I will- These are the unions are over. I will, I will agree with you, and, and yeah, if you don't like the content of a game that you're gonna potentially work on, uh, go away, um, for sure, I agree with that. In my experience, generally, uh, both, you know, when I'm applying for studios and as a hiring manager, one of the first things you generally are looking for is you're looking for some kind of alignment between the types of games that you would enjoy playing and the type of games that you're gonna, you're gonna work on. Um, you know, you don't, if, if you, like me personally, I don't like first person shooters. So I'm not gonna go apply at Treyarch. Like I'm, I'm not gonna do, cause I don't wanna work on a first person shooter. I'm not gonna enjoy myself. So yeah, so I, I agree with you hundred percent, like to complain about Mortal Kombat. It's like, you knew what you were getting into. So that's, that's on you. Um, as far as the pay goes, um, that's not, I don't know if that's a, I don't know where that information is coming from, but I. Software engineers generally across the board are paid relatively well, um, especially lead software engineers can, you know, they do make six figures and stuff. Um, artists generally know, um, you know, it, most people in the games industry are not paid that well. Um, a lot of the companies that, that pay higher are because they are in really high cost of living areas. Like, you know, companies that might pay more or the average pay gets up to 70 or 80,000 in an, in an industry is because that company's in San Francisco and rent for a one bedroom apartment is $3,000 a month. So half of your income or more is going to rent. Um, and that's extremely, extremely common. I knew tons of people at these, uh, at video game studios that were software engineers and they're living two or three guys to a one bedroom house. 
because they're or to a one bedroom apartment because they can't afford the rent and they're not making a hundred or $125,000 a year. Um, you know, I know at telltale, for example, you know, I made six figures because I was a, I was a senior producer. I was one of maybe a handful of people that made that much money. Um, people in the industry are not paid as well as people outside of the industry like to think that they are. Um, there, there are a lot of people in the industry, uh, QA, for example, that they're hourly employees. A lot of times they're contractors, so they don't get benefits. Um, and I have seen QA and QA testers get paid in the 12 to $15 an hour range. Right. But, but QA in particular, though, that is a boom and bust thing, right? You only need QA for when games are in a certain part of their life cycle in terms of development. So no, you they, need QA all the time. All the time. But, but not, not in pre-pro, right? You're talking about, and probably, probably not until you get to the alpha, right? Spiking, but you, you do need QA throughout the entire production. It's just yeah, that it spikes, it spikes definitely around launches. Right. Yeah, right. It, so it you, definitely you, spikes. What I'm but, trying to say is that you can't, well, you can, but certainly they would fight it tooth or nail to have unions for QA people because QA people are, you know, hired and fired based upon need, right? Um, to a degree. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think that's that, I think what you were saying is the point of this article is that that's how the industry is being treated now is, well, it's a boom and bust and everybody wants to do it. So if you're not okay with the fact that we just might fire you every six months, then pick one and suck it. And that's not, that is not a good way to treat employees. Um, you know that's now that's, now who's the snowflake come on uh, really? here, here, gotta stop saying snowflake i just, <laughs> yeah. don't want to be anywhere near like a, a republican radio host i mean to, to me that's just it. you know if we want to take a business you know look to it you know i i'm not a business guy but i know a little bit about business and i know one of the things that you've learned fairly early on when you're learning business is that it's you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 times more expensive to hire a new employee than to, than to maintain one that you already have. Um, so why would you want to keep firing people? And the other thing too, is from a production or from a development standpoint is when you keep, when you have turnover like that, you lose continuity and the, the quality of your game can suffer for it. And that can in turn learn to slow, to lead to slowdowns and delays because you have to keep training up half of your staff. Um, you know, when most like it's a, it is a, uh, a commodity in the industry to say that you have been present for a full, full development cycle on a AAA game to say that you've shipped a game and you've been on the project from beginning to end. Um, that makes you very hireable. And the reason that that is such a hireable quality is because it is so extremely common for someone to get halfway through a development cycle and then get fired because they're not needed anymore. Um, you know, I agree with you, but I think, um, like thinking about the business, right. The, the actual structure of the business really, really matters in terms of overall employee retention. And I'm going to be self-serving here because I think it's actually like fundamentally as an industry, if we start shifting from a product-based model to a service-based model, right? right. A lot of these problems go away. I, I might be just wishful thinking. I might be naive here, Right. But when I look at 
games as a service style teams, right? That are on the marathon. That is a service based game. Right. You do not have room for people to be doing hundred hour weeks, getting burnt out and then not being able to deliver that content. In some cases there's bad apples where in that service, you're going to be spiking in terms of hours worked. Right. But in general, I find that the working conditions now working both on the product side and service side, you get happier people, you get more continuity in a service driven model than you do from a product driven model. The problem is, is like where people's passions are, especially on the HD side is with product driven launches, but the way that that is structured, right? You see this, the same thing in movies, right? Like working a hundred hour weeks now is more valuable than working 40 hour weeks after the game is launched. So of course there's a ton of, of, of pressure to just work insane amounts of overtime to get, to get Red Dead Redemption 2 to be a 10 Metacritic game, right? Like, or, or, or the absolute top of the line um, uh, a game, right? And as soon as we move towards services and towards actually thinking longer term, um, this becomes a lot easier to start saying, okay, how do we keep people hired? How do we, um, how do we uh, incubate the right talent and how do we hold on to, to people? And I think then the game studio, the talent and consumers are all aligned on the same goal. Uh, which I think is the right approach. Um, yeah, but and I, I think if 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 developers, I think developers would be more likely to shift their attitudes and be accepting of a games as a service type model versus a product model when they know you know there's when they know that there's some kind of stability and there's retention, right? But yeah. a lot a lot of the problem is is you know like these guys. Uh, to be to be fair, also a hundred hour work week that's a little bit of an outlier um, to a degree, but 70 or 80 hour work weeks during crunches is extremely, extremely, extremely common. Um, and I think people are more inclined to be willing to work those hours when they know that they're not gonna be discarded as soon as the game ships. And that's the problem is a lot of these, a lot of the studios are doing that is they're expecting that of you, you're working 70, 80, 90 hour weeks. And then as soon as the game ships and you think you're ready for kind of a, take a breath moment and you know, you can sit back and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Then they go, Oh, well the game shift, we don't need you anymore. And then they kick you to the curb and then you spend. But that's the, that's the business time. model, right? Like yeah, the exactly. business model, like, yeah. Does that. That and, and, and all of these studios trying to plan out for the next years because no studio head and no business person, right. is looking at these spreadsheets and only thinking in numbers, right? Like they don't want to have to fire a third of the studio if they don't have to, but when the business model, demands it then it forces them in decisions where they have to hire contractors because they know that's coming um and that's why i say like if we can shift more of these studios to have a service-based game within them you can see a lot of them um they can then actually retain that talent and then be able to to, to actually be flexible as the demands of the product go up and down so i think it's just generally healthier if game studios are able to add these service-based games yeah and that, yeah, and I think if more of them did that, then that could to that could alleviate the problem. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the issue with some of these people though too is that they're not contractors either. Is they're hired as full time employees, they're moving from other states to take a job, and then they're fired six or nine months later with no notice. Like when I was let go from Telltale, uh, I was pulled out of a meeting to be told that they were downsized. I was in the middle of I was literally in the middle of a meeting, and I was pulled into another meeting to be told that they were firing a hundred thousand people. And I had two hours to pack up my crap and get off property. Mm. I had no notice at all. Um, so it was, 
you know, and the only reason I was even able to maintain any kind of benefit or pay was because of the WARN Act. And that was it. If it wasn't for that, I would have been totally shafted, which is what happened to the rest of the studio when they closed down a few months later because mm -hmm. the company filed for bankruptcy. So everybody got pulled into a meeting, said, you have two hours to get your crap, get out. And they got nothing. Yeah. yeah but I, again, I apologize. I mean, I, that's terrible that it happened to you, but that's super anecdotal. And it's like this one particular case of which Telltale was mismanaged for years and years and years. Right. So there was a lot building up to that, which a lot of people knew in industry, what was going on over there. Um, right. Yeah. But uh, so, and, and it sucks, right. It totally sucks. But <clears throat> I just, again, I think, you know, the, the reality of gaming in general is that there are a lot of people that want to work in gaming. And so, and, and, and I don't know if this, it's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just the way it is, is that the, that the demand for these jobs and supply of people are both really high. Right. So, um, so anyway, so if I remember when I was at EA, this was ages ago and uh, Frank Jabot was go talking to Larry Probst, who was the CEO and he says, look, we got to start paying our people more competitive salaries, right? Because the tech giants like Google and, and Yahoo at the time, whoever other crappy companies were, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they're, they're taking our people, right? And they're, they're, paying, they're paying bigger salaries. Right. <laughs> and Larry Probst goes, you know what? Let them go. There's a hundred more people to replace them because everyone wants to work in video games. No, we're not going to increase salaries. <laughs> this is like ruthless, dude. But it's kind of true, and it's still true to this day. Despite how big this industry has gotten, there are just a crap ton of people that want to work in this space. And these, you know, engineering majors from Stanford who could basically write their ticket anywhere come yeah. to games because they're passionate about it. So, I think it creates a tough environment to make the changes that, that this article and you are suggesting to some degree. With you know, a big question here really is unions in gaming, right? Like, like right. will there be unions in gaming? And I think if that happens, I think it will only push the, um, like, push the industry more towards service-driven games. Because I think as a product, right? Like, I'm trying to create this amazing Last of Us Two-style game, right? Which also had a lot of these issues on it, right? Um, you can't do that when you've got unions for QA, unions for artists, unions for developers, dictating how you hire and fire, right? It becomes a lot more strenuous to do that. So it becomes even more of an attractive business model to be able to have um, a service-driven model where then all of a sudden a union's dictating how we hire and fire talent, right? And, and how many hours they can do. Well, with a service-driven model, we have a lot more predictable workload for the next X number of years. That seems like unions actually seems like it's pushing the industry more towards that way um, instead of actually making, you know, products like last of us and like, what the, was the, the whole tech sector is at will employment. I don't know what <laughs> this is. You know what I mean? Like you can get fired at any time for any reason, right? There is, you don't even have to have a reason, right? Everyone's like that Google, you know, Facebook. So that's just not the way the tech sector works. Right. There's no, you know what I mean? Now I'm not an expert in this, but I, maybe we should, do a podcast on this more with people yeah. that are more familiar with this stuff, but well, it just I, seems absurd. I, I, I might be arguing semantics, but there, 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 that is a common misconception between the term at will and I can hire you and fire you for whatever you want at, at will employment is with regard to unionization. Um, so in an industry where there are no unions at will employment becomes moot um, at will, at will, talks more about 
um, whether you have to join a union if there's a union present to work there um, and then hire you and fire you for for whatever you want. Again, I might be arguing semantics. I mean, that's not technically. Well, you know, I'm, I'm talking about like what, employers can hire and fire you whenever they want, right? Uh, I mean, within reason, yeah. I, there's a, the, I will say cause. yes based on what I think your meaning is. Like, I mean, obviously they can't walk up to you and go, you know what, we don't want any more white dudes here. So bye, you know, no, obviously no. that's discrimination. That's not what yeah. I'm talking about. But like, no, they, not, they, not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so within I'm just reason. Saying if, yeah. If, yeah. That's but the way like, Hey, we just don't need, um, you know, we don't need a hundred software developers or a hundred software engineers anymore because we're at a phase of development where we don't need as much code or whatever. So we're going to get rid of half of you. Um, yeah, they're, that's totally legally, they can do that. And it's, and that's the thing is that's what they're doing. Um, and they can do that. And, you know, just exactly to your point, like, you know, they don't, they're not going to lose a ton of sleep over it because there's a hundred people lined up right behind them to take the job. Um, you know, these are all a hundred percent accurate statements, logistically speaking. Yes. Does that make it, you know, right? You know, well, I guess that's a moral argument or, you know, a matter of personal opinion, I suppose. Um, but yeah, and, but I think that's what the article is getting at, you know, is these are people that are getting into the industry because they're passionate about it. And then they're getting, you know, ground up and churned out and spit out and, you know, not given any regard to the work they're putting in. And they're like, Hey, you can't do this without me. Like I'm the creative that's making your game cool. And then you're looking at me like I'm just, you know, some number on a piece of paper and then kicking me out and, you know, using me and kicking me to the curb when you don't want me anymore, you know, but if it wasn't for us, your game would suck or you wouldn't even have a game in the first place. And I think that's, that's the argument and that's where, you know, a lot of people are getting, are, they're getting burned out. All right. Yeah. So let's, let's wrap this up. I'd say like one last point I would have is that for me, the key business takeaway is that this article is kind of like for me, canary in the coal mine in terms of the emergence of populism. I, I think that's just going to happen that that's occurring. And we haven't had a year like this since the late 1930s in terms of the popularity of populism. And so like the business impact of, of, popular sentiment against that is probably the biggest business takeaway in my opinion. So with that, I think that's- How did you get the final word on that one? <laughs> did you just turn it into like a full political revolution coming in at the end? It's not, it's, not political. It's, a, it's a macro trend you can see on charts. But anyway, all right guys. All right, peace out. Week.